Alrighty, number 22 here on January 19th, 2024. Um, got a lot of gear news this week, including a mechanical 12-speed group set that maybe has a chance to, uh, to make some inroads uh, to SRAM and Shimano. Uh, I'll talk about that. Got some interesting racing stuff. We got some... Uh, cyclocross news that relates to cross-country racing and actually gonna do a couple things that I haven't done in a while got a hot or not uh, in other words I'm gonna moan about something it's usually a not by the way uh, except some good tidbits um, bike radar had an interesting video about some innovations and uh, I thought hmm wonder if I agree with those, those type of lists. Uh, those seven greatest things uh, last year sometimes make no sense to me. So let's get going. Got a lot to talk about. This is Short Travel Magazine. Short Travel Magazine. Interesting tidbits, curated just for you. All right, a couple quick tidbits here. Uh, first off, Single Tracks had an article called It's Time for Mountain Bikes to Lose Some Weight. Mountain bikes are getting too heavy. It's time for designers to prioritize lighter weights again. I just cracked up at that one. Uh, there's no way in the world they're going to do that. I don't believe uh, they've creeped up in weight without question quite a bit in some cases. Now, cross-country bikes have only went up three to five pounds, I guess, over the last 10 years or so. But uh, you very rarely hear much, much uh, talk about new products coming out that weigh less than the previous generation. That was always kind of the... Uh, kind of the deciding factor for me. Would I want a new SRAM group set, for example? Would the new XTR uh, group set that came out, it, it's usually lighter from generation to generation. I mean, that's kind of typically how it used to go. That was one of the points uh, of a new generation was that they would shake. Now, they didn't generally shake a lot of weight off. You may only be, you know, an ounce or two, but that went out the window quite a while ago. Each version of seem, seemingly all, all but the crazy exotic, you know, the German uh, wheels from Bike Ahead, you know, are 300 grams light. Not, not that stuff. I'm talking about the kind of OEM uh, stuff from the big companies that shows up on your new eleven or $12,000 mountain bike. Um, just take, you know, SRAM Axis and Eagle, for example. You know, you got your 11-speed, which I have, the XX1. That was extremely light. In fact, if you pick up an 11-speed XX1 mountain bike derailleur, which I have sitting right here, it is almost unbelievably lightweight. Now, granted, it didn't have to deal with that big 50-tooth uh, chainring, which is really what caused much of the weight gain. But still, it is a vastly lighter cassette and uh, derailleur. It's it's 
by half a pound in some cases. Uh, now, granted, it looks a little wimpier, but, I mean, uh, people use those for years uh, with no more breakdowns or uh, broken derailers than they have now, in my opinion. So when the Eagle Axis, when regular Eagle came out, okay, I, there was no way really to shave. They shaved a few ounces from the cranks uh, by, you know, using hollow carbon and all that type of thing. Even the chain rings, uh, the direct mount chain rings, the SL versions of the uh, SRAM one, one by chain rings, really, if you look at the difference between the originals, I have one of each sitting here then the sl the latest versions were quite heavily machined now you're only talking a couple grams on a, on a direct mount chain ring i get that but the rear cassette of course went up in weight not as much shockingly as i expected because they've taken the kind of uh machining away material quite extraordinarily uh, to another level. So the, the Eagle 10 to 50 cassettes are actually not that much heavier. I don't have the actual numbers in front of me than the top of the line uh, 11 speed. You know, maybe 60, 70 grams or something. Nothing crazy. Derailers, on the other hand, are quite a bit heavier as the cages and the pulleys are, are just much, much longer and have to be quite a bit beefier uh, overall. So then the uh, axis, the electronic shifting comes out, and then we take another weight hit on that. That was another 60-something, I'm just speaking roughly numbers, you know, a couple more ounces tacked on for that. Uh, and then the new transmission comes out, and that's heavier yet. So there's definitely not a trend in weight savings. Now, they're adding things, bigger chain rings, stronger this, better that, but weight is most certainly... Uh, not a selling point like it used to be. And, you know, that's not all bad. I mean, durability really is probably just, if not more important than weight. But the single track article's point is that this is kind of being done to every single part of a mountain bike. Um, and it starts adding up. Two ounces here, two ounces there. Handlebars are got wider and they need a little more carbon there are a couple ounces and then you you need uh, four pot brakes because everything's going faster and those weigh a couple ounces more and on and on and on and on next thing you know you're tacking on pounds does it matter in the end Pro obviously not these pros all are riding about the same bike so they're all all their bikes are within I'd say a, I'm not going to sound all euro a, a kilo I'm sticking with pounds uh, you know, they're all probably within a pound or two, no doubt about it. The tires have gotten heavier and thicker and larger. Um, the rim widths have gotten wider, which means more material. Uh, what else? You name it. So, you know, 30 pounds for a lightweight kind of heavy cross-country bike is completely normal now. 30 pounds is probably not bad. If you look at some of the newest Trek uh, super calibers, all except the super crazy expensive ones, they're 27, 28 pounds. That's without pedals. And bikes usually weigh a little more than what they say on their website anyway. So I agree. I think that actually was a good article. It's at singletracks.com. And, you know, 
they don't they don't have it all wrong. I think they're probably right. It would be nice if things I mean, humans, you know, are still the same. We still have the same basic amount of 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 muscle and power. So when our bikes get heavier and heavier, I don't know. Just, that's not necessarily a good thing. So uh, good for them. I, on an unrelated, although slightly related, Bike Radar had a great article. Great meaning couldn't be more obvious if you tried. 11 Tech Innovations That Transformed Mountain Biking Forever. Wait to hear this list. I mean, really, I was wondering if AI wrote this list. Purpose-built mountain bikes is number one. Well, of course, that's the whole point of mountain biking was that it started when a purpose-built mountain bike was created. Suspension. Yes, dropper post, which I still don't have. I've never had one, so I can't comment on that. Disc brakes, 29ers, tubeless tires, one-by drivetrains, and here's one I don't get. Long and slack geometry. Why that's a better thing for everybody, I have no idea. I don't like it. I like... Normal, okay, it's showing my age. Normal geometry. We don't need giant kicked out head tube angles in my opinion. We're not all downhillers. Uh, so to make that as a just a general innovation to me is very lazy. Electronic gears and suspension, I also don't think that's... So far, the electronic gears are doing exactly the same thing the cable gears are doing, just... Uh, electronically and electric bikes carbon and alloy frames I don't think carbon other than weight I don't know I don't think the material for a frame is really a huge innovation in my opinion but anyway so that's their list and every single one of those things adds weight to them to a, over an old-fashioned mountain bike every single one of them so I guess they do go kind of hand in hand uh, 29ers, I would argue, you know, I still don't see. If everybody rides the same big wheels, then it didn't really benefit or make anybody particularly faster if everybody rides them. So, ah, I'm starting to sound like an old grumpy retro grouch. So we better move on before I uh, keep putting my foot in my mouth here. The one thing interesting uh, about Scott, the majority owner of Scott, is actually a South Korean company. Now that was surprising to me. I assumed Scott was a Swiss-based company. Is that? I think that's where they were based out of. I know they were European, even though they had a big uh, history in the U.S. for quite a while. Never. I should probably look that up before I started blabbing here. But anyway, majority owned by a South Korean company, and they gave him a huge loan, hundred and sixty some odd million bucks. Now. I don't know if that means they're hurting uh, like everybody else and they actually have a nice source of cash to keep them going for a while. But still, that's a lot of money for a company to uh, get. And it's a loan, so uh, I don't know. I would not think Scott would be any different, I guess, than all these other bike companies who uh, you know, are having issues with inventory and cash flow and sales not being where they should be. So interesting. When these type of things happen, that's when you start seeing other companies coming in and buying out and selling and merging. So who knows? Uh, last tidbit. Uh, I happen to be a fan of the Netherlands' very own Bart 
Brentjens. I've always liked him. Mainly because... A, he was the first Olympic winner, which is cool, but that gets mentioned to death. I think they could probably retire that. They don't have to say that every time uh, when he's announcing a race. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's his claim to fame. But I like him because, A, he kept his bar ends until just a few years ago. Three or four years ago, he still had big honking bar ends with bar tape wrapped on him still. The same ones he used, like, for 20 years. He finally got rid of them. I bet he still wishes he had them. But uh, the other reason is that he never left the sport. He, he, of course, he runs uh, the KMC team. Uh, the Bart, They call it the Bart Brunchens Racing Team. But he is one of the few guys, him and Frischkinect, who really must have loved cross-country enough to basically make it their whole life. And I just stayed with it. He never dabbled in the road and gravel stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he's done some of that, but I just always liked that he kind of stuck in the true cost country world. And that's pretty cool. Uh, but anyway, there's a great interview uh, at Mountain, well, what is it? Mountain Bike Action? Yeah, mountainbikeaction.com. No, MB. I knew it was something different. MBaction.com. Now, I actually, as I mentioned in a previous podcast, subscribed again for the first time in years to Mountain Bike Action Magazine. They had a $20 uh, a year, and that's for all 12 issues. They're not doing that uh, six or eight issues a year thing. Uh, so I signed up for a couple years, and I've started getting the magazines. And I got the newest one. It's a buyer's guide. It actually has a fair amount of cross-country. I mean, not a lot. But the bike on the cover is actually the Trek uh, Super Caliber, which is cool. And it's got the uh, Race Face Carbon Cranks on the cover. And the Fox uh, Float Rear Shock that would be used in a cross-country bike. So that's kind of cool. But anyway, on their website, go to mbaction.com. There's a great interview. Just posted today, I believe, with Bart. And it's just all text, but uh, it's it's good. It's asks him some kind of obvious questions that I would kind of was wondering about, and it was a good read. Kind of give you a little insight into things that I've never heard about him. So if you're bored, go to mbaction.com homepage, look for that interview, and that's it for tidbits. Let's get on to some racing. Racing news and views. All right. Big news on the cross-country race front for 2024. I think it's big news. Uh, there is a race, a cross-country Olympic race. Abu Dhabi. The Hero Abu Dhabi is the official name. Well, actually, the official name is the Hero Abu Dhabi Hudariat Island. Okay, that's quite a name. The prize purse for this one-off race is 150,000 pounds, euros. <laughs> What's that little uh, backwards-looking E with the double? I think that's euros. Uh, I have a short track and an XCO, 150,000 euros. That is way more than any World Cup or other race. Obviously, Abu Dhabi wants to get some mountain biking action going. They've already got road races and World Cups there, I believe. 
Um, so they first, of course, had to create an area to ride in, and they built a, uh, looks like 15K worth of hand-built, all man-made uh, mountain bike trails. And if you see any photos of it, it actually looks like a giant bike park. Honestly, it's not, I mean, it's cool for what they did, but it's a picture of flat desert, and they just tried to build, um, you know, it's actually, it says the lap is 5.4 kilometers. No, that's that's the gain, the elevation. Uh, no, 70 meters of positive ele elevation gain. Well, that's not a whole lot, I guess. Uh, but still, in fact, the short track has 30 feet of positive elevation. So you got a short track and you got a cross country. Basically, it's a giant, smooth bike park kind of a vibe. You know, got a couple little drop-offs, got a couple wood things to jump off of. It's still kind of cool. It's the middle of February, and it's going to be, of course, very hot there. But uh, 20,000 euros for the winner of each category. That's, that's a pretty good paycheck. Um, the people who we know for sure that have kind of signed up, they're calling them ambassadors, so they're probably getting paid. Uh, Luca Brido. Alessandra Keller, Sophie Peterson, I believe, but she's a junior or under 23. And even Peter Sagan is going to uh, be there. I'm guessing most of the other well-known racers would be there. Uh, the short track will be February 9th and the XCO on the 11th. Uh, they're going to said it's going to be very similar to a World Cup. So that's going to be cool. So mark that down. I have to assume somebody's going to show that. Uh, live on something, even if it's streamed. It makes no mention of that part right now. But it has to be, I would think, streamed. If nobody's watching it, then what's kind of the point? So you got that. That's something new. I don't know. It's very early. It's February. Most of the races are in full-on training mode since the first World Cups usually are not till April or May. Uh, not to mention March with the uh, Cape Epic, but, you know, a lot of the racers don't do the Cape Epic because of its length and sheer brutality. So this might be something that a lot of these cross-country people uh, kind of work in. could become a regular thing, kind of a way to see who's hot uh, and who's not, maybe, even though it doesn't necessarily mean anything uh, in February. But still, I find that pretty cool. Uh, speaking of Alessandra Keller, she is the new Swiss cyclocross champion, which is pretty cool. She has been posting that she's been doing some cyclocross races, and she actually does very well. I think she did a World Cup or two and was in the top 10, which is pretty cool for somebody who does not, you know, dedicate uh, their entire year, entire season uh, to such a race. So that's cool. Um, but a whole bunch of European championships were were at the same time, the same weekend, which I think was either last week or two weeks ago. Um, so I always like to look at these things and go, okay, which cross-country mountain bikers are actually doing these cyclocross races? It seems like a no-brainer. I've always thought, why would you not want to do some cyclocross races, even locally, not, you know, World Cup uh, type of a thing necessarily with a lot of traveling but since most of these World Cup cross-country racers are in Europe, they all have got 
cyclocross races. So I always thought it was odd that less and less uh, of them are doing that. But Lene Burkay, who is now, I believe, out of the under-23, right? I believe she raced elites uh, last year. She got second in the French cyclocross championships, so that's kind of cool. The uh, Of course, Alessandra Keller won. Uh, for the men, uh, Swiss, Joshua Dubois uh, made it to the podium in third, which is really cool because, of course, he was kind of a, who is this dude uh, in 2023? He had a great year. Nobody ever heard of the guy, and suddenly he's up at the very front. Uh, so that was kind of cool. And then, of course, you have Elizabeth Brendau, which I mentioned not too long ago on the podcast. She was a, you know, big mountain biker. She kind of disappeared, and she's on a comeback. And I believe she won the German cyclocross. I, my page where I was checking this stuff out seems to be missing from my list. So, you know, of course, you got Puck. Puck is the Dutch cyclocross champion, and she, of course, had to race from Van Empel and Salen Alvarado to get this win. So that actually is a huge deal. Uh, so she is the national champion uh, of Deutschland. Is it Deutschland? Dutch? I don't know. I can never remember all the different names for these uh, things. So that's kind of cool. Lars Foster used to do some cross. I think he's still doing some, but he didn't uh, uh, show up on any of the podiums. So, uh, you know, there are some people who, uh, I guess, do both. It'd be kind of fun to see a few more of them. Pauline fran of course, didn't do any this year, and she had a horrible, uh, horrible cross experience last year. I can understand why she wouldn't want to do that. Uh, so that's that, and let's do a little tidbit, a little... A little trivia. Uh, which country had the has or had last year the most UCI cross-country Olympic races uh, in the whole world? Which country had the most UCI cross-country races? Uh, I won't keep you waiting. I was very surprised. Spain. Spain had the most. I don't know why. I would have never thought of Spain. I mean, they... They get an occasional World Cup there. Uh, lots of road action, of course, but I was very surprised at that. Now, they do have a, a cool series, you know, that a lot of the, the World Cup people do kind of as warm-ups, if you will. I believe those are mainly in Spain. But I, I 33 of them they had. So that's pretty amazing. Uh, so remember that. If you ever get to Spain, you could probably find a race uh, to do. Uh, snow bike championships. That's the last bit of racing news I love to talk about. First ever snow bike world championships. Now, I find it interesting. They call it snow bike because unlike here in the Midwest, upper Midwest, they don't ride fat bikes. These are, they're literally doing like super G, like ski with the, the flags you have to go around and dual slaloms in the snow on regular Mountain bikes. Uh, I always thought it'd be cool if the UCI had a fat bike world championships, but that, of course, is going on in Leadville. I think it might be this weekend, actually. I know it's very soon. 
Is it over? I don't know. I meant to follow up on that. Um, did not. So they have a snow bike world championship. Now, is anybody going to give a hoot? I don't know. It's February 10th through 11th. Uh, it's, you know, the pictures look killer. These dudes with full face helmets and kind of skiing looking outfits flying. And I have to admit, they are flying down these snow. Uh, I'm assuming there's the same ski hills they would use as alpine skiing. So, uh, it's pretty cool. 1800 feet of vertical drop, which is quite a lot on snow. And some of the videos I've seen, they were going like 50 miles an hour. So the snow obviously must be very hard packed because if you watch, there's a guide on YouTube, a, a guide to snow bike. Uh, the UCI put it out. All you need to know about snow biking. It's a pretty cool video. Um, you should check it out. You could see the tire tracks, much like a muddy race. You could see the tires clearly in the snow. Whereas a fat bike, you know, of course you'd still see it, but it would be spread out a little wider. So I don't know if that's going to be a thing or not. Obviously, it's a downhill thing. I highly doubt any cross-country racers, if any, would do such a thing. But it is interesting that the UCI is getting in on snow biking. Why they need to stretch themselves even thinner, I don't know. How about a little fat bike love? And finally, fat bike love. Uh, I have a fat bike race tomorrow up in Wisconsin. It's the third, should have been the fourth, but they canceled uh, the last race uh, a couple weeks ago because it was too warm. There were, literally was no snow. It was rain and mud. And now they've got a foot and a half to two foot of snow, and it's cold. It's around 10, looks like tomorrow. It's going to be around 7 degrees Fahrenheit as the high. So this race is around 11 in the morning. Could be around 0 degrees, uh, which should be fun. As long as it's sunny out, that, that helps. But uh, finally, the entire race will be on groomed snow. Now, I have, I've done three years now of these fat bike races, and for some reason... A lot of the races are not on formerly groomed snow, but just snow that everybody rides through and kind of mushes down. Uh, but the trails look like they're kind of skinny. They're only a couple feet wide, but I'm kind of looking forward to hard packed snow. It should kind of feel like dirt, I'm thinking. I don't know that I've actually ever ridden on groomed snow. I have no snow trails around my house that are ever groomed whatsoever. So I asked why I don't really go fat biking in the winter aside from these races because there is no trail system for me to to use. Um, I've been trying all afternoon to air up some brand new studded Dillinger 4-inch 26 tires that I had ordered a couple months ago in anticipation for a icy, snowy race, which hasn't existed. Tomorrow doesn't look like I will need them. There's no ice involved. I still wanted to bring them. You never know. I thought I would maybe throw them on there and give them a shot. But I cannot. I, sometimes I really, really hate tubeless tires. I cannot get this one tire to air up. It's way too loose on the rim. The front one went on absolutely perfect first time. The rear one, same tire, same rims, same everything. It's blast and sealant all over my basement floor. And I, I don't know what I'm going to do. 
Uh, I'm going to have to go Google some tips, you know, strap the tire down. I I could put a tube in it to seat it, but I already poured all the stupid sealant in. And, you know, sealant, I'm using Silka sealant. It crap's expensive. It's like almost 30 bucks for 16-ounce bottle now. <sighs> so that's that. I am looking forward to that. Let's do some quick talk about... Boy, I, got, I could go on. I got a lot of stuff. I'm going to have to wrap this up really. Do a little bit of old school. I got something cool for that. Let's talk about the old school. All right, old school. This is uh, going to go really far back. Anybody remember Don Myra? Probably not. If you're under 50 years old, you probably don't know much about Don Myra. He was the man, one of the men back in the very early 90s. In fact, he was the 89 Norbert world champion and actually did race in the 96 Olympics, which you have to remember, there was only three racers, I believe, if I recall, chosen for the U.S. team. Or was it only two? And he was one of them. So he he lasted, you know, into the mid-90s and then, then retired. But he was also a very, very good uh, cyclocross racer. And he did some road stuff. But uh, Canadian Cycling Magazine, who I check out all the time, has a uh, kind of an article about his 1990 Fat Chance race bike. Uh, he's kind of a larger dude, so it's got that super long seat tube. Uh, you know, the top tube is vertical with the ground, which you just don't see anymore, of course. Rigid, fully rigid. Uh, really funky, the original Fat Chance forks that have that kind of box crown and then the fork blades really bend out. You know, they come straight down and they really curve. I'm sure they would tell you that's for, you know, some compliance. But really, there is no compliance in the early steel uh, mountain bikes. I happen to have one. I know this to be true. Uh, but it's kind of cool. You know, one thing that stands out is all the components, the stem, the seat post, are silver. In fact, I was kind of surprised to see that the rims are black. Uh, the other surprising thing, which made me think of this, is the full uh, the rims, which probably mean the hubs. I can't tell from the photo. I'm pretty sure why why would they not be? Um, the whole group set and wheel set is Campagnolo. Uh, yes, Campy actually made mountain bike group sets for quite you know several years. They were very expensive. Uh, you know, they looked pretty much like the road stuff. Um, the brake levers were huge. They were chunky, fat-looking things. But Don Meyer had full campy wheels, cranks, derailleur, chain. He had the whole the whole bike. I think even the seat post might be campy. Uh, maybe even the headset. The headset, did they do campy headsets? I don't remember. He's even got a campy water bottle on it's that beautiful neon green color that Fat Chance, you know, used. Um, but it's cool. And it made me kind of think of my 1990. It's actually, I bought it in 91, but I believe it was built in 90. My steel hardtail from Kurtlow that I just found in my crawl space. I had wrapped it up. It's a finished crawl space. Don't, I don't want to make it sound like I just threw it in a 
in a dirty old crawl space that's finished. But um, I wrapped it all up, took off the wheels and kind of bubble wrapped it and stashed it away. And I was moving some stuff and I found it and I forgot how cool kind of the 26 inch rigid hardtails were. I mean, they're just, I, to me, because I grew up with them, they just look really nice and balanced and with the sizing and everything. So that was really cool as a time warp to remember my first year of racing was on a rigid fork uh, just like everybody else and then I believe the second year in 92 is when I got my first uh, original Manitou the original answer Manitou fork the original Manitou forks were not uh, they were a little different they they looked similar with the gray uh, outer stanchions and all that stuff but they when answer took over they kind of cleaned it up a little in fact i have one sitting two feet from me i'm looking at it right now it's my favorite looking fork from the 90s i love that gray and silver uh, real boxy kind of homemade look so uh that's cool that, that made me think uh campy is uh no longer in the road world tour there was an article uh this week about how not one single team now in the uci world tour on the road, we'll be using Campy. I think last year, one or two teams were using it, and now zero. And I thought, okay, they're obviously, you know, for the super high end, I mean, geez, their electronic road group set is almost five grand just for the, the Grupo. Think about that, five grand. Um, so I thought, and they, they have a gravel set that's doing pretty good. It's 13-speed Ektar gravel which uh, has kind of made some some inroads. So I thought now would be a great time to focus on a killer, super quality, mechanical mountain bike 12, actually 13 speed if they're doing it on the gravel. That could be uh, kind of like rotor uh, with their 13 speed. Uh, that would be kind of cool because as we get, as since Ram and Shimano, you're almost, maybe Shimano will stick with the 12 speed mechanical on their next round of XTR, but I, I bet they don't. I bet they drop that uh, completely. There will be no 12-speed mechanical group sets uh, that are high-end, which is a perfect segue into what I want to talk about and the final thing for today, the gears. Let's go. Changing gears. Changing gears. More new stuff we don't really need. All right, who is this new 12-speed mechanical group set? Uh, that would be TRP, the brake company who has been dabbling with drivetrain stuff uh, in the past few years. They, of course, this is nothing brand new. This is all almost a year ago. They announced their new 12-speed uh, group, the Evo 12, uh, fully mechanical, gold and black, if you will. Uh, looks good fantastic there's already been full reviews of that so i'm not going to go into all the details reviews have been pretty positive i mean there was a few issues but there were also a few things um that were actually improvements to sram and shimano's 12 speed uh, mainly with the rear derailleur i think the clutch has a couple interesting features uh they have no cranks Formerly, I mean, I believe they're, they look like FSA cranks or somebody else's cranks. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe they're their own. Uh, it says 
you know, they're labeled as TRP. Uh, but anyway, they look just like the SRAM or the FSA cranks. But uh, the reason I brought it up is originally I'd say it's no big deal. They don't have a chance. Everybody's moving to electronic. But, you know, not everybody is. And options like this at the high end, it doesn't really do any good if, you know, Shimano keeps making, let's say, uh, a Dior level or an SLX level mechanical group set because nobody in the right mind would race with that uh, at the top level. But um, this all comes to to a head because Bart Brenchen's team, the KMC team, uh, they had SRAM Axis on there, I believe, the last few years. I don't know if they were formally sponsored. I don't think they had their logos on their clothes. So I'm assuming maybe they were paying for it outright or I don't know not, it doesn't matter the point is they are now using this TRP Evo 12 system uh, for 24 the whole team which is pretty cool uh, that's kind of one thing I, I like I like two of the teams the best I like the Rock Rider team and I always liked Bart's team because he and Rock Rider would have some brands and components that None of the other big ones would dare use or not say dare as if that's not the right term, but they just wouldn't use because the big guys, the big Shimano's of the world have got the money. And of course, they're going to sponsor the biggest, best teams with these slightly smaller teams. They can get away with the things. So they're using TRP brakes and uh, the whole group set. I believe they're using Megura brakes uh, the last few years. If I remember correctly. So that's kind of a big deal. I mean, this is, hey, you know, we're going to see these products at the World Cup level. And KMC has some pretty good racers. I mean, they're not necessarily always uh, podium winners, but they're they're active at the World Cup. And that might only help things. Maybe in a couple years, you'll see a revision to the Evo 12 that makes it even better. Um but it, it's it's lightweight. It's actually, they say it's one gram lighter than XX1 and two grams lighter than XTR, which basically means it's the exact same weight. Uh, so that's a wash there. So that's kind of cool. And they use a micro spline free hub, so they don't have to deal with patents, it said, and they don't have to make up their own. So I don't know. They're going to have alloy and carbon cranks. Uh, with the MRP wave tooth pattern on the chain ring. MRP, you don't hear much about. They you know, mainly make chain guides. and They've been around a very long time. They make forks and chain rings, but you just don't see that at the cross-country uh, kind of market almost at all. Occasionally, you'll see a chain guide from from MRP. But they're using their uh, their patented tooth profile for the chain rings. So it's kind of cool. I kind of, you know, brought in some elements uh, from all over. The cassettes are for, I was, first thing I do when I see a group set is go, how much does a cassette cost? Because that to me is always, that's the worst. I, you know, 400 bucks for a crank, I don't care. That that thing will probably be on my bike forever. But the cassettes, they're, they're 400 bucks and they're 372 grams for a 12 speed, which is not horrible at all. In fact, that's extremely competitive um it's at least 80 bucks more or i mean less than the uh, eagle 
top-of-the-line cassette, and the weight is either the same or near it, within a few grams. So that's pretty cool. Chains are 40 bucks, 75 bucks. Shifters are 110 bucks. Uh, derailers are 240 bucks. Cranks are 350 bucks. So, you know, not bad. I, I I'm gonna kind of see how that goes. Hopefully, they have a good, good success. That will maybe. That's a great. You know, I'm sure TRP is probably already working on an electronic groups that just to fit in with everybody else. But man, I really be nice to see somebody keep making really kind of World Cup uh, race level mechanical components uh, for quite a while. Um, what else? Got so much, but I may just save it. We're already running late here. Uh, yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up here. And I'll do a quick, quick hot or not, like I said I would in the intro, and then we're done. Here we go. Hot and not so hot. All right, it's time for not. This is definitely a not. Integrated bar and stems. There, I said it. I hate, hate, hate of all the things that have creeped into the mountain bike world in the last 30 years. The integrated bar and stem is one of the dumbest things I have ever heard of. Really, it really is. It makes zero sense except it looks cool. I mean, the whole point of fitting yourself to a bike is the ability to adjust the angle and the feel and the roll of the handlebars. And the stem, you want to raise up. You can't just jam 80 millimeters of spacers under one of these things. First of all, that would look stupid and defeat the whole purpose. Because uh, if you look at most integrated cross-country bar and stem combos, they're slammed. They look best when they're slammed. Now, most new bikes, maybe some of them will give you 20 or 30 millimeters of spacers. That's about it. So the new Super Caliber is a perfect example, the high-end ones. Uh, I would have to, I'm, I'm old, I cannot ride these slammed uh, zero-degree rise handlebar negative 17 stem combos. It just doesn't work. I'd have to put 100 mil of spacers under my stem. Um, my top fuel, for example, came with 30 under the stem, which I kept. Uh, it's a 7-degree rise and a 5-degree rise mini uh, handlebar, mini rise bar. And that's been perfect. So to get the equivalent of that with a Super Caliber, I would have to have about 60 spacers, 60 millimeters of spacers under there, which is not only it's not included in the steer tube, it's not recommended for safety purposes. So, you know, I get the Nino Shirters of the world, gets a custom handlebar made for him, or Yolanda Neff gets just the exact one that she needs. But for the general consumer market where, you know, the general public are buying these bikes, I just think it's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen. Picture a seat post and seat integration. Would they ever do that? Not in a million years. Because every single person needs to tweak 
that angle and that fore and aft adjustment of their seat. You just have to. The stem uh, reach and the rise and the handlebars and how you rotate the handlebars. Do you want them flat? Do you want the uh, rise to be, you know, there's 10 ways to adjust a stem and bar and a seat post and a seat. So to eliminate half of that, throw it in the toilet and say, nope, this is what you get. Uh, okay, you know, you, you got your your uh, few of the really short pros I noticed, like Anton, uh, what's his name from New Zealand? Is that his name, Anton? Uh, he uses, you know, an aluminum stem dropped 40 degrees or something. You could never use one of those combos. But if you buy a $12,000 bike, you're going to get one whether you want it or not, and you're going to have to throw it away or sell it for half price and spend another three to 400 bucks on a pro quality carbon bar and uh, stem. So stupid. I hate it. Big time not. Maybe that'll go away. Uh, it does look really cool, so I'm guessing it will not go away. In fact, if anything, I bet you'll see them on darn near every bike uh, within the next couple years at the higher end. All right, let's end it on a complaining, bitch and moan session. And big announcement, uh, February 1st will be the first short travel uh, YouTube video component to uh, this project. I've got great things I'm reviewing. I have a bike show I'm going to be covering in the next couple weeks, I've got a lot of things I've been working on, interviews and all kinds of stuff. And it needs the visual component, I think, to uh, to make sense. So I'm going to do that. Now, what does that mean for this podcast? Well, I'm going to keep doing it. And I might do one of those Joe Rogan things where you do a podcast but show the video of it. Or I might not. I might just keep this as a podcast only and only make short videos for certain topics like uh, product reviews or the bike shows and interviews I'm going to do. I don't know. I'm going to kind of play it by ear. But they got some big things coming. Uh, just for all you cross-country and uh, mountain bike maniacs. All right. Talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you ever so much for listening to Short Travel Magazine.